This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Each week, I'm joined by our co-host, Alicia Jenkins, while I share with you a new deep dive into another case. By sharing a victim's story, we hope to put the pressure on you so that you can get involved and help make a difference. We present this show to expose the monsters lurking all around us. Hey everyone, so glad you're here. You only have me today. Our co-host is gone. My mom is on a little getaway with my stepdad. They're in Vegas, hanging out, doing who knows what. But you know, we all need a little vacay sometimes. So they are out of town and I'm just going to be doing this one solo today. But before we jump into it, I wanted to talk real quick about a little bit of true crime news that came out this week and is pretty exciting. I don't know if that's the right word because it's very sad. It's, you know, a very sad situation. But when I saw this news, I was like so consumed by it. I cried over it. If you're, you know, with me on Facebook, I shared about it. But in the Delphi murders, which were the murders in Indiana of Abby and Libby, there has been an arrest. And if you don't know, the case. It's out there in a lot of places. I think I'm going to cover it this week for our fan club just to give you guys like a good sense of the case so that going forward we can kind of follow it together and see how it all pans out and you know you can understand the updates as we go. But Abigail Williams and Liberty German were murdered five years ago in Delphi, Indiana. So it's been five years, an unsolved case. They were young girls, 13 and 14. And it's one of those cases where you've just hoped and hoped and hoped there was going to be a conclusion. And you think there will be, but there's always kind of that tinge of like, is it going to happen? It's been so long. It's been five years. And not to be like a Debbie Downer. I always hope these cases are solved, but there was a part of me that thought we may never know what happened to them or who did this to them. And there was an arrest, an arrest of a man named Richard Allen. It's pretty horrifying because he lives there in Delphi, Indiana. He worked at the local CVS. He was married. He has daughters of his own. It's just really tragic. I mean, we still don't know a lot. The police have been very tight-lipped in this case, and that's all right. That's all right. I I know for the public, you want to know more and all of these things, but honestly, they're doing the best for this case to ensure a conviction, and I just want them to, you know, keep doing what's right and, you know, find these girls justice. I hope that this arrest leads them to a conclusion and, you know, just, you know, keep your thoughts with Abigail and Liberty's family because this is a great time and also a very devastating time because it's going to bring up a lot of the emotions. It's going to bring up 
a lot of just the feelings surrounding the case and they're going to have to go through a lot with a trial if that's in store. So I just wanted to put that out there that after five years, there has been an arrest. It seems like this case is being solved and that's truly incredible. It's what I love to see in these cases. That's, you know, I think kind of like why, you know, that's one of the things the end goal is for all of us who are like web sleuthing and trying to solve cases in our own minds. So just thought that was pretty cool. Wanted to share it with you. And for today's case, it is devastating. It's a case out of Boise, Idaho, and it's you know, going along a little bit with spooky season because many people think that the house this murder took place in is now haunted. So with that, are you ready? So as we end out spooky season, I wanted to wrap it up with a grisly murder case out of my home state of Idaho. The brutality of this murder has led those who have encountered this home to be consumed by an eerie feeling. The home this murder takes place in is located on 805 Linden Street in Boise, Idaho. It sits on the corner of Linden and Leadville. If you're driving through Boise on Interstate 84, the house is off of exit 54. It's this beautiful craftsman style home, four bedrooms, two and a half bathrooms. And when I say it's beautiful, I mean it could be beautiful with a little bit of TLC, tender loving care. It's a home I would love. I'm super obsessed with those old homes that are unique and have some character. But this house sits along Linden Street in a state of disarray, which makes the creepy vibes that radiate from it that much stronger. If you didn't know this already, me and my husband both lived in Boise for about a year. We went over to Boise State University straight out of high school, and no, we were not married at the time. I lived on campus, but my hubby, boyfriend at the time, lived in an apartment very close to Linden Street. Years later, after we moved to Utah and then Alaska and now back to Idaho Falls, I made a new bestie once I got back here. Well, his boyfriend lived in Boise before moving here to Idaho Falls. And a few months ago, he actually sent me a video on this case from the TikTok account, Andy with an I, who created Idaho Crime Squad. And he told me that he lived just down the street from this home. I knew I had to cover the case one day, and I thought what better time to do it than as a wrap-up on Halloween season, because this home is rumored to be haunted. There are a few names people have given the home over the years. They're not great, but I'm going to reiterate them for you here, because if you look up this house, that is what you'll find. So some people call it the Chop Chop House, some people call it the Macrob Manor, or the Boise Murder House. But while the hauntings are up for debate, there is a real case behind the darkness in this home. Let's go back in time to June 30th, 1987. It's a bit after midnight that someone living on Linden Street in Boise, Idaho is awakened by commotion outside. It seems to be taking place right on their front doorstep. I can guarantee you if I was woken up in the middle of the night to anything around my house, my heart would be jumping out of my chest. I am not all about that. So this person is definitely startled and with a pounding in their chest, they stand up out of bed and make their way to the front of their home. 
A man outside is heard literally shaking on this person's front door handle. He is pounding on the door. Is he trying to enter? And that's when the yelling starts. The man outside is now screaming, let go of me, among other painful screams for help. This person rushes to their front window now, and they're peeking out through the curtains, and there is a man running around outside just in front of the home. And he's not alone. He's being chased. The perpetrator is seen catching up to the screaming man, and then he is dragged down the street and to the home of the window peeker's neighbor. So the person who was woken up to this insane scene is like, okay, I have to do something. So they dial 911. And look, I know it's easy to be like, why didn't you open the door? Why wouldn't you go out and help? But that is easier said than done. I would never recommend someone to open their door in the middle of the night. The safest option for you is to dial 911 immediately and get them on their way. So dispatch answers and this neighbor is like, hey, there's all this craziness going on outside. Someone's pounding on my door. It looks like there might be blood on my front door. I saw them being chased. And dispatch is like, okay, thanks. Um, I'll let the officers at the Boise Police Department know and we will send an officer to check things out. So this neighbor continues to peer out of their window, just watching the 805 Linden Street house while they wait for police. Soon, they see two people emerge from the home that the poor man was dragged into. These two people are now outside and they're pacing around the porch in the yard before one of them grabs a garden hose and starts hosing down the porch. This person knows there is a likely blood on their own door. So is that what these people are washing down across the street? It's really strange. And when one of the men walks over to this neighbor's home with a flashlight, the person inside is spooked. It looked like the man was looking for something and they hope no one noticed them watching through the curtains. The initial adrenaline this person had starts to wear off as the hours pass by and police never show up. So they decide to head back to sleep. Maybe the police are going to come by in the morning. But the sun rises and still there are no police in sight. All they see is what they describe as a brown sedan sit sitting in front of the 805 home. But soon it's driven away and something just doesn't feel right. The neighbor makes a second phone call to 911 and they're like, look, I called in the middle of the night. You guys never showed. I wake up this morning and something sketchy is going on. There's blood on my front door. You need to come investigate this. So finally, officers are dispatched to Linden Street. Upon arrival, a sullen feeling comes over the officers because there is not just blood on the door. There is a blood trail leading from the 805 home to this neighbor's house, and then all down the street to multiple neighbors' homes, and then back again to the murder house. On top of that, there is blood splatter across multiple homes on this street. One of the first responding police officers is Manuel Martinez, and he can see that something went very wrong during the night. So they call for backup, and the street is blocked off with crime scene tape. Officers need to determine if someone was injured inside that home. As soon as backup arrives, the police knock on the front door of 805 Linden Street. But an eerie silence is all they get in return. There is clearly enough suspicious evidence to obtain a search warrant, but until that comes through, police cannot enter the home. 
By 2 p.m. on June 30, 1987, the search warrant is issued. Multiple officers bust in the front door and make their way into a bloody crime scene. There is a blood trail all around the home, but the majority of blood is found in the basement. It was so much blood. Someone was likely killed here, but there is no body. So why didn't police show up the night before when someone calls 911, literally saying there is a person outside being chased? I have no idea, but it was clearly the wrong decision to not treat this call like it was an emergency. When that neighbor went to bed and waited until the morning to make their second call to police, they had no idea that two men were brutally taking the life of that screaming man they had just dragged back inside the 805 home. The man who had been pounding on neighbors' doors and left that blood trail behind him was Preston Adam Murr. On June 29, 1987, he had visited Boise, Idaho to attend a funeral. And it's after this funeral that a group gets together to reminisce and hang out. They had all attended the funeral, so emotions are high. And when the group starts drinking and becomes intoxicated, things go downhill quickly. A fight actually breaks out between Preston and two other people in the group. It was heated enough that the other members of the group call the police. And during this incident, the Boise police actually show up promptly. The two other people involved in this fight don't seem to be the two people who will later murder Preston. The police actually issue citations for disorderly conduct and they're given to Preston and the two others involved in the altercation. At this point, Preston is done with the group. It was a sad end to a sad day. He makes his way over to his sister's apartment. He's staying there during his visit, and he has his girlfriend there with him too. So they all settle in, and they're talking about the night and how it got out of hand when Preston receives a phone call. Someone is shouting at him from the other end of the line, saying they're going to kill him. This threat freaks him out enough that he makes his own phone call to the Boise police. And this is the second time in one night that he's making contact with them. And he tells them he's been threatened, that someone out there is looking to kill him. There's not much they can do since Preston doesn't even know who this phone call is coming from. So police jot down the information and tell him to keep them informed. Just let us know if you find out any more information about the threat. Now he is on edge. He cannot stop thinking about this threat. He doesn't feel safe here at his sister's. He needs to find out who had called him. I'm assuming, as this is 1987, that he must not have a phone with caller ID. Possibly this was a home phone at his sister's house. I do not believe he had any type of cell phone. So Preston decides to call a friend of his that lives there in Boise. This is Daniel Rogers. Maybe Daniel was also at that party from earlier in the night, but that's not stated. Preston is calling Daniel because he wants to see if Daniel can help him figure out who in the world would be threatening his life. And once Daniel hears Preston out, he agrees to help. And he tells Preston to come over and meet him and another friend, Darren Cox, at the Circle K store on Boise Avenue. With that, Preston asks his girlfriend to wait there at his sister's apartment, and he's off to track down this caller. Witnesses around the area recall seeing Preston holding a baseball bat while using a payphone at that Circle K store. So clearly, 
Preston is on edge. This doesn't just seem like some drama or a little argument between a friend group. It seems that Preston is actually worried about his safety. So Preston hops into Daniel Rogers' car along with Darren Cox, and the three of them head back over to Preston's sister's house. Everyone hangs out there for a while. Things are good. They're discussing the phone call and thinking up ways to handle the situation. And then Daniel is like, you know what? I've had some guns stolen from me recently. We could go find my guns before we find who threatened you. I know I have at least one of my guns back at my house, but I really want those other ones back. Now, here's what I wonder. Did Daniel think Preston was the one who stole his guns? Is this all some sort of ruse to get Preston to admit he has the guns? Is it possible that Daniel and Darren are the ones who made the phone call threatening to kill Preston in the first place? I'm not sure. Maybe all of this connects, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe Daniel and Darren are really here trying to help Preston, but things go downhill. Once the guns are mentioned, Preston, Daniel, and Darren drive to Daniel's home on 805 Linden Street. So Daniel and his wife, Catherine, own the home that we know police later find blood in. It doesn't seem like Daniel's wife is around this night, but that's not stated factually. When they arrive at the home, Daniel grabs one of his guns from inside, and then the trio goes off to drive around Boise, hunting down the apartment of someone that Preston says stole Daniel's guns from him. So you see, there might be something connecting Preston to these stolen guns because why is he telling Daniel that he knows who stole Daniel's guns, that he can point him to the right apartment or to the right person? I don't really know. It just makes me think that Daniel could have been, you know, involved with the threatening phone call to Preston. This whole friend group seems like very shaky. Are they really friends? I don't know. And I'll also point out there are drugs involved. So it just seems like a very sneaky situation. But at some point, Preston is able to make a phone call to his sister's apartment and let his girlfriend know that he's helping Daniel and Darren track down Daniel's stolen guns. He will be back sometime in the night, and it's already getting late, so she does not need to wait up for him. Eventually, the trio makes their way back to Daniel's home. It doesn't seem that the allegedly stolen guns were ever retrieved. I don't know what happened inside that home, but things get tense between Preston, Daniel, and Darren. So tense that Preston is actually shot with Daniel's 357 Magnum handgun. And the shot is to his shoulder, so it's not fatal. And this is when Preston books it as fast as he can out of Daniel's home. And he's going door to door, banging on the neighbor's homes, seeking protection from his attackers. So when Preston is caught by either Daniel, Darren, or both, he is dragged back inside Daniel's home where the same Magnum handgun is used to kill him with a fatal shot to the back of the head. The murder is occurring in parallel with the neighbor's phone call to 911. And if the police had been dispatched immediately to the scene, they would have caught these depraved killers in the act of trying to dispose of Preston's body. But no one ever showed. So after hosing down the porch and trying to clean up a little bit of the blood outside, Daniel and Darren go back inside and they take Preston's body to the basement. One of them uses an axe while the other uses a knife. 
Together, they dismember the body of 21-year-old Preston Adam Murr. Pieces of Preston's body are placed into multiple plastic bags. And when the gruesome dismemberment is complete, they throw the bags into the trunk of the car owned by Daniel's wife. It's a brown Grand Prix, and this is probably the same car that the neighbor sees when they wake up. They had described a brown car outside, and then it drives off shortly before the neighbor calls 911 that second time. So who could have known the body parts of a 21-year-old man sat in the trunk of that car? When they drive off, they're headed to dispose of Preston far away from Boise, hoping this murder will not be connected to them. I guess they forgot about the commotion that woke neighbors up in the multiple homes that have literal blood evidence on them. Apparently, they figured no one would be wise enough to connect what happened or call the police to see what all this blood is about. They're dumb. Daniel and Darren start driving west towards the Idaho-Oregon border. And it's on their way out of town that they pass through Meridian, Idaho. This is right next to Boise and was probably their first or last stop on this quick road trip. So while they're at a convenience store, possibly gassing up their car or wiping things down before returning home, they dispose of bloody gloves and other bloody clothing that connected them to this murder. But they don't want to dispose of Preston's body this close to home. They drive out to Weezer, Idaho, which is about an hour and 15 minute drive from Boise. It's a town right there on the border of Idaho and Oregon, and they pull over at the Brownlee Reservoir. Pulling out the plastic bags, they toss Preston's body into the lake, but not everything sinks. It seems that they remove the parts from the plastic bags to throw them out into the lake. So some body parts sink, but other parts of his body remain at the surface. Daniel and Darren have to go out into the water and retrieve anything that is still visible. So now what? They walk over to a bluff that sits about 100 yards above the water. A bluff is described as a small rounded cliff or hill that overlooks a body of water, and it's there that they discard the remaining body parts. The plastic bags that held the body parts were discarded at that convenience store in Meridian, Idaho, which makes me think they stopped there on their way back to Boise. The two men breathe a sigh of relief because they feel like they just accomplished a huge task. Now they just have to get home and clean up that murder scene. But little do they know, police had already arrived at Daniel's home. It doesn't take long for the officers to track down Daniel. They can't really charge him with murder yet, but during their search, they were able to seize drugs and money from inside the home. So both Daniel and his wife, Catherine, are arrested on June 30th in the afternoon. The couple is handcuffed, they're read their Miranda rights, and then they're told that they are being charged with possession of controlled substances with intent to deliver, along with some other drug-related charges. And this isn't what police want to charge Daniel with, but at least it gets him behind bars. So now it's time for some interrogation. Police present Daniel with all the evidence uncovered inside of his home. Aside from the large amount of blood, police also found a bullet fragment inside a clothes dryer. There's a bullet hole in the door that sits at the top of the basement stairs, and that 357 Magnum handgun was located. Daniel had tried to stash it in the bottom of a speaker stand, but police were thorough with their search. 
Through interrogation, Daniel never admits to being inside of his home on the night of June 29th or the early morning hours of June 30th. But he must mention Darren, because soon after Daniel's arrest, Darren is also brought in for questioning. Then he cracks. He is literally singing like a canary as soon as he's connected to the crime. Darren gives his version of events from that fateful night, admitting that there was a murder. He says that Daniel was the ringleader and that he only went along with the plan because he feared Daniel and he thought he would be next if he denied to help dismember and dispose of Preston. Darren even leads police to evidence, which is probably how they uncover Preston's remains and the other disposed evidence just a few days after the murder. Once the body of Preston Murr is recovered, police charge Darren Cox and Daniel Rogers with murder. They're set to have separate trials, and Daniel's is up first. The trial takes place a little less than a year after the murder in March of 1988. And remember, up till this point, he had never admitted any involvement, although he did make some pretty exculpatory comments during his questioning. So during testimony in his own trial, Daniel finally says he was inside the home when Preston is murdered. His story does not align with Darren's, of course. I'm sure neither of them are telling the truth. The real events of that night probably lie somewhere in the middle of each story. So, according to Daniel, Preston and Darren get into this knife fight in the basement, and Daniel tries breaking it up when he alleges that Preston came at him with the knife. Daniel says he was holding his gun, so he fired a warning shot in self-defense. This is the shot that hits Preston in the shoulder. So, of course, Preston flees up the stairs and out of the home. He's like, what the hell, dude? You just shot me. And Daniel says that as Preston was running away, he shoves Daniel over. So Daniel drops the gun and he claims that Darren picks up the gun and chases after Preston. Daniel says that Darren is the one who dragged Preston back into the home all on his own. And while Daniel was upstairs, he hears the gunshot that kills Preston. He says Darren then comes upstairs, tells him that he killed Preston, and explains the plan for disposal. Daniel also claims that he did not have the stomach to help butcher Preston, but he does help clean up the scene and dispose of the evidence. I lean towards not really believing much of what Daniel has to say. I don't really know why, but the fact that Darren immediately cooperates and leads police to the evidence says a lot versus Daniel, who at first refused to acknowledge that he was in his own home during the murder, and then he later changes his story to what I just told you. Although I do think they're both bad dudes that took Preston's life willingly together. So during the trial... There is testimony from different witnesses. One of them is Barbara Fleming, and she testifies about the many conversations about stolen property she had with Daniel before Preston's murder. Daniel had told Barbara that stuff was always being taken from his home, things like guns and marijuana, cocaine and money. He tells Barbara that Daniel said he will find out who is responsible for the burglary and he would, quote, take care of it. Again, this comes back to my thoughts on him possibly believing Preston stole something from him. The court allowed the jury to hear this hearsay testimony because they believed it showed motive and intent, although Daniel claims he never thought Preston stole anything from him. 
There's also expert testimony in the trial, and it's presented by Dr. Irving Stoner, who is a forensic scientist and chief of the physical evidence section at the Institute of Forensic Sciences down in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Stoner was also a special agent for the FBI, where he spent two years in the FBI laboratory. He has this training in blood spatter pattern analysis. Say that 10 times fast. It's pretty hard. Blood spatter pattern analysis, as well as blood stain pattern literature. So he comes in to discuss the blood spatter found at the scene, which would have been a lot. Think about it. Preston was shot in the shoulder. There is splatter from that. He then leaves a trail of blood outside door to door. There are multiple neighbors' homes with blood splatter on them. And then back at the home, Preston is shot in the head. This is more splatter within the home. So after Dr. Stoner testifies, the deputy coroner, Daniel Christman, provided a secondary expert testimony about blood splatter. And he, Christman, had worked at the King County Medical Examiner's Office in Seattle, Washington, before his move to Idaho. And he was a pathology technician. He had an associate's degree in criminal justice, as well as multiple credentials in blood stain interpretation. Which, here's just a little fun fact. Do you know the difference between a coroner and a medical examiner? Maybe that's a dumb question, and I'm like the only one who didn't know, especially in this world. But one of my clients pointed this out to me. She is a nurse, and she was telling me that in Idaho, we use a coroner for autopsy-related things, and other areas or other states may use a medical examiner. Like, I believe California uses a medical examiner, not a coroner. So a medical examiner is a trained physician with the American Board of Pathology in the medical specialty of forensic pathology while a coroner is usually not a physician and not trained in medicine. They are usually a voted position in association with the sheriff's office. And like I said, maybe everyone knew this, but I always kind of thought a medical examiner and a coroner as being the same thing because they often perform the same duties. And I was clearly wrong. I thought it was pretty interesting information and not to put a coroner down at all. I'm sure they work so hard and they become extremely well-trained in what they do. But she was just telling me that as a nurse, she sometimes sees, she does a specific thing. I don't know, but she's, she works with like, uh, what is that called? Um, organ donation. Yeah. So she's, you know, she does work with the coroners and stuff often. And she said, because they don't have this medical background, Sometimes they can get things wrong and, you know, something maybe that looks to make logical sense to the normal person would not actually be the conclusion with the medical background of knowing exactly how the body works. I don't know if that makes sense, but it just gave me like some pause when I, you know, am reading through cases and I see coroner versus medical examiner. I'm not saying coroners are not good or good people, but, you know, just very interesting that there's that difference and that some states have one and some states have the other. Anyway, moving on. You would think that Darren Cox would have testified against Daniel, like in Daniel's trial, but I guess Darren made it clear that he would be using his Fifth Amendment rights, so it would be pointless to call him as a witness. 
there is some back and forth between the defense and the prosecution about whether or not Darren will be called, but ultimately it's stated that Darren is unavailable to testify. Instead, Daniel's defense called to the stand two witnesses that claimed Darren made statements to them about the murder while serving time in the county jail. One witness testifies that Darren told him, quote, listen, I want to get Dan out of the way and I'm going to get him out of the way because I want Dan's wife and I want his business. I don't know what I think about this. I don't know if I believe it or not. I also think it could be like Darren just trying to sound cool. I don't know. But Daniel is later upset in one of his appeals, claiming that if Darren was made to testify, it could have been proven that he was the mastermind behind the murder. But the court doesn't think so. They think Darren's testimony would have just made Daniel look even more guilty. The jury finds Daniel guilty of first-degree murder, and the district court sentences him to a fixed-life sentence. It's stated on legislature.idaho.gov that when a jury finds a statutory aggravating circumstance beyond a reasonable doubt, but finds that the imposition of the death penalty would be unjust, the court shall impose a fixed-life sentence. So, it's unlikely that Daniel Rogers will ever see freedom before his death. The district court also notes, quote, the defendant is a dangerous person. He should never be allowed to go free. Nevertheless, he can be controlled in a prison setting. And it was actually hard to find reporting on Darren's sentence, but in one of Daniel's appeal documents, I did find that Darren Cox pled guilty to lesser included charges following Daniel's trial. So he did not have a jury trial and he likely received less time than Daniel. Of course, Daniel has tried to appeal his conviction. He doesn't think it's fair that after taking someone's life, he should have to sit in prison for the rest of his. He has filed appeals and a petition for post-conviction relief, claiming things like prosecutorial misconduct, ineffective counsel, and claims of the search inside his home being illegal. He thinks that because his former brother-in-law observed police outside of his home securing the area before the search warrant was issues, issued, that this may be enough for new evidence to get him a new trial. Even though his brother-in-law literally testified that he can't be sure if he saw police in the morning or in the afternoon. And on top of this, the brother-in-law also never saw any officers enter the home or leave the home. Daniel's appeal also points to testimony from Shelly Sterrell, and Shelly had called the Rogers home on June 30th asking to speak to Dan or Catherine about a babysitting gig. Shelly testifies that she called at 10.30 a.m. and that a man named Lance answers the telephone, and Lance was a police officer. Now, Shelly says this was at 10.30 a.m., but on the same note, she also says she hadn't slept at all the night before, so she wasn't entirely sure the exact time she called the Rogers. Well, this Lance guy she's referring to is Lance Anderson, a Boise police detective, and Lance testifies that this phone call was received around 4.30 p.m., two and a half hours after the search warrants are issued. So the court stands with Lance's testimony. None of da Daniel's claims hold any weight. All of his appeals have been denied. Thank goodness he does not deserve to be free because not only did he participate in the murder of Preston Murr, 
he also had a prior conviction of second-degree murder. Yeah, you heard that right. Daniel had murdered someone before, 10 years earlier in 1977 while living in California. The judge presiding over Daniel's murder case in Boise noticed that the prior conviction had some, quote, factual similarities to the case in California. Daniel had given a ride to this victim, but things go south for some reason. And Daniel pulls over, ordering this person out of his car before pulling out a gun and shooting them in the chest. The victim is reported to have fallen face first onto the pavement, and lying there already dying, Daniel shoots this person three more times in the back of the head to ensure their death. At first, Daniel had denied any involvement, just like he did in Preston's case. But later, he changes his story to say he only shot in self-defense. Funny, since I'm pretty sure someone literally laying face first on the ground outside of your car. You do not need to shoot them three more times to defend yourself. You could have just driven away and called police immediately. That is what would make self-defense more believable. And in that case, Daniel pled guilty to murder in the second degree. I don't know his sentencing, but clearly it was not enough because he is out free when he murders a second time. Preston Adam Murr had been born to parents Adam Ringwalt Murr and Carol Murr. The couple had him when Adam was 38 and Carol was 37, and they welcomed their son into the world when they were living in Santa Clara, California. I couldn't find if he had siblings, but according to the case, he had been at his sister's apartment earlier that tragic night, so he at least has one sister. His parents must have left California and moved to Idaho. I believe they moved here to my hometown of Idaho Falls, because after Preston's death, his body was sent back here to Idaho Falls, and he was buried here in the Rose Hill Cemetery off of Rolandette Street. He had traveled to Boise to attend a funeral, unaware that he would soon have his own life taken. His parents couldn't have an open casket for their beloved son because of the brutal dismemberment. It's unfathomable to wrap your mind around how one human does this to another. But people are sick. Monsters are lurking all around us. Preston thought he was in the presence of friends. He went to them for comfort after feeling on edge about a threatening phone call. But they were the danger all along. This house may be haunted. Those that pass it or those who have lived in it may have stories. It seems that a relative of Daniel's former brother-in-law owns the house, and he probably rented it to Daniel and his wife and then continues to rent it from there on. Rumors of this home are all over the place. Many people have rented the home. Stories are spread, from people claiming to see blood dripping down the walls of the basement, to people encountering black ghost-like masses, or a woman ghost screaming from the upstairs window. Whatever the feeling people may get while near this house, I'm sure it's evil because an evil act occurred here. Don't use this vicious crime scene as your next photo op or as a fun place to go get your heart racing. Remember, a real human being, someone's son, was murdered here. Never forget Preston Adam Murr. 
I am Kayla Waters, and I research, write, edit, and host this podcast. My co-host is Alicia Jenkins. She was not here with us today. Our palate cleanser is given to us by the amazing Charlie Waters, and all our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. If you leave us a five-star, especially written review, I will literally love you forever, and go follow us on all our social medias, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters, and today we're going to be talking about spiders. Did you know what the biggest spider in the whole world is? What the? I thought it was a tarantula, but it's actually the Calliope bird eater. It's in northern South America. It's the biggest spider in mass and length, and it has eight legs. So does the spider eat birds? Yes. It can eat birds and anything smaller than it. Bye. Have a great day. I'm in my pajamas. Because this case had a lot of, you know, elements within the drug world and possibly that could have been a motive and intent in this murder, I wanted to highlight the Idaho Harm Reduction Project. You can visit their website at IdahoHarmReductionProject.org and they're all about promoting health and safety for all Idahoans. The Idaho Harm Reduction Project works to serve the drug-using community of Idaho as well as the general public by creating safe communities through evidence-based programming, education, needle exchange, and appropriate needle disposal. You can visit their website to donate. You can visit their website and create a wish list. And you can also just see what they're all about, what they do, and how you can volunteer.